the head of marketing was was passing out the annual report and he passed right by me and didn't give me a copy of the annual report. And I'm like, where's my copy of the annual report? He said, oh, generally women don't understand the annual report. And so I just never give the annual report to to any women. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We have been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity in the legal industry. Occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of the show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, what we've learned, and what we're still learning. Today, we are excited and honored to transition from Black History Month to Women's History Month with our distinguished guest, Paulette Brown. Paulette, Senior Partner and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of Lock Lord, she was the first woman of color and third African-American person to be the president of the American Bar Association. Throughout her career, she's held a number of positions, including in-house counsel to a number of Fortune 500 companies and serving as a municipal court judge. Paulette has always been a leader in driving diversity, equity, and inclusion. And as president of the ABA, she drafted Resolution 113, which was passed in 2016. This resolution urges legal service providers to increase opportunities for diverse lawyers and urges clients to focus a larger percentage of their legal spending on diverse attorneys. And I'll add, a friend and has become a mentor, and like our Madam Vice President, is a proud graduate of Howard University, and maybe we'll be able to get the call and response of HU out of her before the end of this podcast. I'd like to turn it over to my colleague and friend, Jonathan Greenblatt. Thank you, Brian. As the first of our series in Women's History Month, We'd like to focus today's discussion on women in the legal industry, the challenges women face, and how, in your case, Paulette, you've overcome barriers, as well as advice for other women in the industry. Brian, do you want to kick us off with the first question? Yeah. So, Paulette, this this one won't surprise you. Um, I think you've gotten this, you know, a lot of your career. And I should add, in addition to being president of the ABA, uh, obviously, you were also president of the National Bar Association. And you've seen this from all sides. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit uh, about the barriers you faced as a woman of color uh, in the legal field and how these have changed over the course of your career. Great. Thank you, Brian. And thank you, Jonathan. Also, it's a pleasure to be here to kick off Women's History Month. I graduated from law school in 1976. So that should give you a little bit of a preview of some of the things that I experienced. You know, and it, and it started really in law school where my person who was in charge of career development, career counseling, whatever it was called at the time, there were, there were eight Blacks who graduated when I did. There were no Hispanics, no Asians, 
um, who graduated when I did. And the career counselor, she pretty much directed us to either legal services or the public defender's office, not even to the prosecutor's office and no no clerkships. But I was fortunate, unlike a number of other people, there was a colleague who graduated the year before I did. His wife worked at Johnson & Johnson, going to work for a steel company. ERISA became effective the year that I graduated from law school. They were looking for anyone who was willing to learn about ERISA, and I raised my hand. And and so I went to work for a steel company. It was the third largest steel company at the time. I worked for their service center division. And interestingly um, enough, the issues that I confronted were more gender-based than race-based because of the steel industry. And also because, you know, they, they saw me as a woman first because there were no other people of color around. But because it was the steel industry, they were accustomed to seeing Black people because a lot of Black people worked in the steel industry. The bias manifested itself the first time for me was when um, uh, the, the head of marketing was, was passing out the annual report. And he passed right by me and didn't give me a copy of the annual report. And I'm like, where's my copy of the annual report? He said, oh, generally women don't understand the annual report. And so I just never give the annual report to to any women. And um, I said, well, that is not the case with me. I, you know, I know how to read etc. And, you know, my comprehension level was pretty high. And he gave me one. He actually apologized. And I never had actually that issue again. But then, you know, ERISA had a big impact on labor negotiations. And while I visited all of the plants all of the time, um, you know, when I wanted to actually go and be a part of the negotiations, you know, first it was, you know, you got to wear a hard hat if you go into the plants. I'm like, I'm willing to wear a hard hat. And, you know, just various obstacles. Ultimately, I mean, they had no intention of me participating in any labor negotiation. So, you know, it, it, it came to that. But that was pretty much it. But, you know, when I first started going to court, you know, there, there were barriers. I remember the first time I went to court, it was in Morris County, New Jersey, and uh, which is a pretty white county, especially at the time. Um, not, not so much now, not as much as it was then. But I remember going into court and the sheriff's officer came up to me and basically said, you know, defendants aren't allowed, you know, at this table. And I said, I'm not the defendant. He said, are you the court reporter? I'm like, no, I'm not the court reporter. Are you one of the jurors? No, I'm not one of the jurors. What are you then? Um, so, you know, so you, so you had that sort of thing. And then, you know, and, and I have to tell you that those things don't happen anymore. But, you know, I was trying cases on a regular basis until, you know, maybe five, seven years ago. And even then, you know, it wasn't so much discrimination. But when I went to the trial call, you know, there were, could be a hundred lawyers at the trial call and no one looked like me. So, you know, it's still very much a sort of segregated profession. And, um, you know, where some things there has been very little progress in some areas. Let me ask you, we, we went to um, law school at roughly the same time, actually. And I've seen, I think, the same arc that you were describing and one of the things that's been a constant throughout that period, even when not as many women were getting into law firms, is that women, and particularly uh, women of color, but all women, were uh, leaving law firms earlier and not being retained to the same extent as particularly white males. 
And why do you, first of all, do you, is that still happening in your perception? I think you've measured it. And secondly, why is it still happening at this? We're now talking about, you know, 35, 40 years later, and we're still talking about the same things. You know, it's, um, um, we are still talking about the same thing that's unfortunate. And I should also say that when you talk about women of color, we're not a monolith either, you know, so there are different experiences, you know, depending on, you know, whether you're Asian, whether you're Native American, Latinx, Black, or African descended. And, but none of it is good. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are a number of different factors that play into it. I don't know whether you've read any of the ABA reports, but the, you know, there's a good one walking out the door that was co-authored by Stephanie Schaub and Bobby Liebenberg that talked about, you know, for a great deal of time, a lot of focus was placed on people who left the profession early. But the, the research that they did showed that more experienced women were leaving in greater numbers when they should have been at the pinnacle of their careers. And, you know, the reasons that they leave was because they, you know, they had, you know, to care for their parents and, you know, various issues such as that. On the flip side of that, when you ask women of color, I co-authored a study in 2006 called Visible Invisibility, Women of Color in Law Firms, and it showed that 85% of women of color left law firms within five years of being there. You know, and they cited a number of different reasons, you know, the biases, the lack of work, um, the notion of being isolated, you know, you know, just all sorts of feelings that they got. And one of the reasons, you know, I said at the time was that with regard to women of color and why they fare worse than any other group is because white men are still very much in charge. And especially in 2006, they were still very much in charge. And they, whereas, you know, they could relate to other women because they saw them as their sisters and their mothers and their wives. And, you know, with regard to even men of color, you know, they could see them in various contexts, especially in sports contexts. So, but there was nothing that they could relate to when it came to women of color. Um, you know, so for the most part, their interaction with women of color were maybe just their housekeepers or whatever. So, you know, so they did not perceive them as women who could be lawyers, who could be, you know, capable of doing certain things. So, you know, so there was a reluctance to give them quality assignments and so forth. And, and there are exceptions to that. There's some people I know who had excellent mentors who have done extremely well. But for the most part, when you look at it, and unfortunately, when you look at the numbers from 2006 to now, they have not changed that much, especially not for women of color. So you still have less than 2% of women of color who are equity partners right now. Um, 0.75%, not even 1% for African-American women. 0.85% for Latinx women. It's not measurable with regard to Native American women. And Asian women, it's about 1.12% or something like that. So, you know, so some people may say that Asian women have the highest percentage, but it's nothing. You know, you, you can't say it's the highest percentage when it's still less than 2%. So, you know, that some, some things have changed. And I have to tell you that I think that things have been really slow to change. And I, I just want to say, whereas mainly white women were leaving uh, the profession, you know, when they got to be age 50 or so at the, at the, which should be the pinnacle of their career. When we did a corollary study for women of color, long-term careers, and we found that basically women of color don't leave and they almost don't leave 
for the same reasons that the other women do leave because women of color uh, many times are the primary caregivers in their families. And so they need the income. And also a lot of times they are like a first generation lawyer. And so they are expected, you know, there's an expectation in the community that you're going to stick this out and that you're going to be a role model for other people to follow. And then a lot of them just say they love the law. So they they take the abuse, you know, and some of the comments that that the women said in 2006, they're still saying and, and they're still saying in 2020 about the kind of comments that are made to them. Well, why don't we stay on that theme for a second, Paula? You mentioned the importance of mentors, and and I want to call out white men and and say I don't feel that we have stepped up to the plate and been mentors uh, for people who don't look like us nearly to the extent that we need to. And I'd be interested in your perception on that and and how that might change in the future. Because if it doesn't change, I'm I'm afraid we won't make progress nearly at the rate we need to. Right. And so and so I agree, you know, and it's it, it's interesting because the women who I know who have been very successful, especially in the large firm context, you know, and it's not that many. I can name them all. They will say that it was because a white man was their mentor, probably beyond a mentor. They were actually their sponsor, somebody who would vouch for them. And that's what you really need within an organization. You need more of a sponsor, somebody who will vouch for you, who will go to another partner and say, I want Paulette to be on your matters and I want you to make sure she gets her fair share of work. And, you know, I want her to get valuable feedback on what she's doing. And I want her to be able to make a mistake and 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 that you will keep working with her, you know, as you would any other person, especially another white male who may look like you. See, the, the, the thing is, is that people in general, they kind of gravitate towards people who like them. So when you're looking at things like this, you have to be intentional. You have to say, this is what I need to do. And it's not just for you or for that person, but it's really for the success of your organization. You know, because you have, you bring people into your organization and you pay money to bring them into your organization for the most part. So you've made an investment and don't you want to improve on your investment? And I think a lot of people don't think that way. Um, you know, and they don't take the time and energy to continue to build on that initial investment that they have. They don't take the time to understand that you brought this person into your organization because you did think that they would bring value to your organization. So I think that you have to look more inward. So, you know, the main thing is that you have to be intentional about what it is you do, because some things just don't come naturally to you. Um, and if you don't take the time to think about it and think not who I have included, but who have I not included? Yeah, really good points. And, you know, I'll pick up on something you were saying there to, to, to John Paulette and then try to segue into my, my next question. But I found it interesting as part of your answer that you said you've brought people in and we're talking about women now and, you know, obviously women across the spectrum, but what does it mean to your organization? So by not fully embracing the women, it's, it's almost, you're running at odds to, you know, the overall success of your organization. So I want to, I want to kind of segue us to, to the pay topic and you were good enough to be on a webinar with us almost a year ago, but it's probably nine months. And you spent some time talking about this, right? And so all the things that you're saying and the data shows women are working every bit as hard, maybe uh, harder in some cases, 
but there's a pretty pronounced pay gap. Um, uh, it, we could focus on the partner level for a second. And so I guess it's two parts. Why is there such a pay gap still? And what are some of the things that we can do uh, about it? And, and I guess, you know, completing that segue, by, by having this pay gap, again, are, are the firms kind of working against their own interest and in maybe alienating women who they're paying less? So, you know, so that's that's really a very complex question, and I can't pretend that I know the answer to it. All I can say is that I think that it's good to do pay equity assessments to see what it is that you're doing, Um, because actually, you know, probably if you ask someone, they would say, no, 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 we don't do that. But it's because nobody has ever taken the time to examine it Mm -hmm. to see that it is actually true in too many circumstances. And also, you know, you have to look at the sort of practice area that, you know, sometimes women are geared to and whether it is a lower rate practice, which would cause them to make less money. So there are a number of factors that go into, you know, the compensation process and, you know, what is valued and what people get credit for. And then of course, the almighty origination fee. Yes. it plays into it as well. So, but I think that for, again, firms to understand, you know, they, they have to do an assessment. They have mm-hmm. to do pay equity study to see where the gaps are and, and the holes are. And I think that when people start doing that, that they will have come to an understanding that, yes, that there, there really are some differences. I don't think it happens as much on the associate level as it does in the partner ranks. Partner level. Because, you know, it's easier to measure what people right. are doing. Right. And, and you said something, again, I think in your, in your conversation with John, my opinion, this is still happening, and that is you're doing your work. The firm is asking you to go to bar events and recruit. Uh, and to your point, whether it's women, regardless of color, or women of, you know, a specific race, you're being asked to do a, a lot more than just uh, origination or do the work. Do you see that being calculated into how you're you're compensated at the partner level? And if not, is that one of the things that maybe one of these um, you know pay assessments could unearth and and maybe address? So so a pay assessment would unearth those types of things, I, I believe. But you know it varies from firm to firm, Brian, um, as to you know how people are given credit for that. I remember in a previous firm they called it. Oh, what did they call it? not being a good citizen, but they would actually sort of ding a partner who did not participate. Do those things. Okay. Like that. Um, so, you know, they would, they would say, you know, they're, they're not a good citizen um, um, because there was an expectation that you should do things like that. And that was without regard to who you were, you know, I said on the compensation and, and they dinged a man for doing that. So I think that if if things like that happen more, I think that that would be uh, very helpful. But, you know, it is an intangible. And sometimes people have not been able to construct a measurement tool for something that they believe is intangible. And I think that, you know, there are ways to do that. And I think that people are coming to the realization that there are ways to do that. You know, it's interesting that... um, you know, you know, and it, and it and it happens more with with uh, people of color because you know they're expected to generate the same level of business as everybody else, but they don't necessarily have the same type of connections. And so, in order for them to do things, they have to belong to a lot of different things, hmm. and they have 
go to a lot of different meetings. So, you know, a meeting with, um, uh, it was an LCD program and a young lady said, you know, why do I have to belong to the ABA and to the National Bar and to the Dallas Bar and the JL Turner Bar? And unfortunately the response from the person um, who was responding was, you know, um, a white powerful woman who had had a great white male mentor said that basically was telling her that she didn't have to do it. She said, just, you know, she just said, just get a good mentor and they'll help you along in your career. And, you know, you can get business that way. And and I was supposed to be sitting on the sidelines. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. That is not how it works for most women of color. I said, yes, you have to belong to all of those organizations. Is it fair? No, it's not fair. But that is Hmm. what we have to do to make sure that we make ourselves available to every network and to avail ourselves of every opportunity to meet as many people as we can, build as many relationships as we can, so that something at some point will connect and you'll be able to bring in business. Because, you know, for the most part, it's happening a little bit more, but people were not generally turning their practices over to people who look like me. Yeah, You know, and just following up on that, I would add and ask whether you think I'm right, but a lot of my friends who are women of color in the partnerships feel exhausted in addition to doing all the things that you just described that they need to do. They also find themselves mentoring, coaching, pushing the diversity initiatives, et cetera, to a disproportionate amount of the of the responsibility, and that isn't fair. And that's one of the reasons I asked you why it is that or what it is that white males need to do to step up to the plate to share that responsibility. But um, I do think that that's another burden that people don't take into account. Right. It, it is. And there's, there is an unspoken expectation that that is what you are going to do, even if no one articulates it. You know that that is something that you are supposed to do. And people do it in addition to their work and people will call on you. You know, I know that I have the title of senior diversity and inclusion officer, but, you know, and one person who was about to join the firm said she was talking, they were in a LCLD program together. And he said, he had just sent me a text and she said, you sent her a text? You have her cell number? Every diverse lawyer in the firm has my cell number. (laughs) And, you know, I, I have to say that I am fortunate that we have a good chairperson who is intentional about what it is. And so he is like what I call my amen corner. You know, I say something, he repeats it to the firm. And I think that that is what you need. You need a lot of other voices. And not only that, you've got people now who are in-house who are very concerned or very interested in women in general handling their matters and getting credit for handling their matters. And you've got a lot of just in general, you know, and things since the summer have really stepped up in that regard in looking at, you know, really taking a closer examination of what it is that firms are doing, what kind of teams they're having. And so, you know, yesterday um, we hosted belatedly a Black History Month program because it was scheduled for February 16th, but because what happened in Texas, we we didn't have one of our panelists, the chair of the firm, lost his power and water. So we had it yesterday, and it was for African-American female in-house counsel to talk about, 
you know, what it is that they look for in their teams, what it is that, you know, that their their expectations from firms, and they gave it straight, no chaser. Um, we had about 130 people participate in that program. But I think that when you get messages like that, and, and, and they are very specific about the things that they are doing, the rewards that they're given, and the stick that they're yielding when firms don't do what they what they expect them to do. And so and so I think that when you have more of that and then you have some people, you know, who are who are right thinking, you know, in the organizations who are coming around to the notion and understanding that people have been treated differently over a period of time. I know I sound a little Pollyannish, but you know, I'm a little bit more hopeful now because I think that you know, one of the things that happened, you know, of course, there were many George Floyds before this summer, but because of the pandemic, people didn't have anything else to watch. You know, there was no March Madness. There was no other things. And they kept showing that video over and over and over again. And there was a realization that they couldn't believe this was happening, but it's been happening all along. But it opened up people's eyes in a sense. And so we have to see whether, you know, time will tell whether the momentum continues. But I think that it's going to have to. I think that firms are coming to the realization that if they want to talk about their firm 50 years from now, that they're going to have to be some real structural and cultural change. Mm -hmm. And people are going to stop talking about efforts. and, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things that I said, and my chairman, he, he, when we had a conversation, he said something about efforts. He said, oops, I can't say that word anymore. Um, and I'm like, yeah, because we, we have to stop talking about efforts. We have to start talking about what it is we're actually doing. You know, right. what policies that do we have in place that will live no matter who's in charge or whether I'm gone or the chair's gone or whoever's promoting that thing at the time. Mm-hmm. My, I'm elevate. My voice is elevating. I know. No, no. no. I mean, it's it's you're you're asking the question. You know, it's it's that it's going to define if we're in a moment or a movement. What right. side of history do people want to be on? I I appreciate you flagging that. Sorry, John. I know you. Had, I think you had a follow up. Well, maybe. I was just going to say, you know, before we lose the moment, that I uh, applaud not only what, of course what you're doing, which is phenomenal, but the, your senior partner for doing what you've described him to do because. This has to be top down and right. it has to also be reinforced by clients because in my career, we've talked about it a lot and we're sitting relatively in the same space we did when we first started talking about it. Right. And that's at least 30 years of, right. of action. So, right. so I just wanted to say how much you know we appreciate that effort. And of course, we appreciate the support you've given us, but beyond that. You know, it's 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 funny, and maybe because uh, we 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 just finished Black History Month, and we had a couple of uh, very good guests on that, and now we're transitioning, right? And and obviously, you 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 stand in both. I find it really interesting, though, um, as you were saying, you and John were uh, went to law school in kind of the same era, uh, and so did this guest that I'm thinking of, David Baker Lewis. I don't know if you know him or not. I do know David Baker Lewis uh, from Detroit. Okay, that absolutely right. Of course, I do. Great guy. Yeah, um, but you guys were both sounding. You know, it's. Fu- I, I guess I, I use the word funny. That's probably not the right word. But I listened to both of you say we're more hopeful at this moment, right? Despite the arc of uh, of both of your careers, and obviously running into some tough times. Um, probably, you know, especially in those early days. And you know, I wonder if you, you know, you you talked Lewis, about a li- white and clay. 
Yes. <laughs> that his firm. Yeah. How <clears throat> Lewis and Monday. Right. Yeah. yeah. How have you gotten to a place that is is so more hopeful? And and I have to imagine that from those early days of, you know, being excluded from the negotiations to doing all the trials that you did, along the way, you found this strong voice. And I'll remind you that on the webinar, you talked about being a bias interrupter. And you do that even with your chairman. So where did you find that courage over time to say, you know what, I'm just going to speak up and you know, I don't want to say the chips fall where they may, but you were a person that not only did all the stuff you talked about, but called people out to, you know, to really examine themselves. I have to tell you, Brian, that's one reason reason I'm not rich and I'll never be rich. <laughs> rich, rich in spirit and blessings, but maybe maybe not exactly. as not as not, much not, money, not, right? Not, not the dollars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but you know, you know, it, it comes from my upbringing, <laughs> if you must know the truth, you know, from no, my please. parents, mm. um, you know, who always said, you know, a couple things. My father always said, take people as they come to you, which mm. is what I have always tried to do. I'll try to live in a judgment free zone, but I always, I don't like it when people don't treat people fairly. I don't like it. And sometimes, you know, it's gotten me into a lot of trouble, but I feel duty bound to say something about it, you know, and it, and I guess it, it was reinforced when I went to Howard, when it's, you just don't accept certain things, right? You, you were taught, you know, certain principles, you know, you, you, you got this guidance as to, you know, people's rights, people's fundamental rights. You know, I am not a civil rights lawyer and I don't know that you necessarily have to be in order to push for things that you that you think are just right and to call it out when you see them. I, I don't like it when I'm the only one who calls it out and then people come up to me later and say, I'm glad you said that I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, don't tell me that. You right. know, speak say, up. Say, <laughs> say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't, 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 you know, don't tell me that. You should, you should be saying it also. But you no, know, it's it's um it's just something that I guess is has been ingrained in me pretty much all of my life from my parents. Mm. You know, my mother was very strong and she she always spoke out and she continued to speak out. And, you know, she would she would call people out, you know, in council meetings and so forth, uh, you know, when she thought they were wrong and she would let them know when she thought they were right. So. Can I pick up Fair on enough. that, Brian? Um, no, please, because please that note of optimism, which I share. Um, and, uh, it's for a lot of reasons, but a lot of it is based on the younger generation and their outlook on life. So I would be interested in knowing what advice you would impart for the next generation of lawyers, men and women in improving gender equity in our profession and what they need to do as young lawyers at this stage of their career to help push for that. Right. So, so, you know what, so I have to just tell you that I'm so inspired by um, young lawyers, just truly inspired. I remember when, um, for example, the, uh, you know, the George Floyd incident happened, you know, it was the young lawyers in our firm who were like pushing for some sort of action. And they were just so brave, you know, you know, some of them were just first year lawyers and, you know, they were willing to stand up and talk to people, you know, without fear. And I think that they are, young people are more interested in injustice um, and speaking out about it. Mm -hmm. I think they're more brave than my generation in making sure that there is equity. I also think that 
though in the law firm context, even though they are brave, they still understand what it is that they need to do to be successful and they are able to navigate both things. Both worlds. That, you know, one of the things that I would like for them to understand um, is that, you know, I'm not suggesting that you go slowly, but that you can do more than one thing at a time and that things can run on parallel tracks and they don't necessarily have to be going at the same speed, but they have to be going at a consistent speed. You know, it has to be like a nonstop uh, situation. So, you know, I, I would I would just say to keep focused and look at the big picture, because sometimes, you know, I was not as diplomatic as I should have been. And I probably could have gotten more done had I been more diplomatic in some circumstances. You know, people used to say, call me, what comes up comes out. And sometimes, you know, you can temper what you say. And sometimes you don't have to yell and scream to get what you want. And sometimes people listen mm. better when you are more calm and talking about things. And when you have put things in a logical order and know exactly what it is that you want and know the mm. That are necessary to get there, and you have carefully laid out so you can easily articulate it so that anybody can understand. Yeah, that is great advice. And I know John John's going to close us out with the last question, but I, I just wanted to say, obviously, we have you here as a senior partner and as the chief diversity and inclusion person, and you know, applauds you. But as you said, your chair and and Alan and other people that thought outside of the lines. Obviously, disclosure to our audience, we're working with Lock Lord, but uh, to the point that you and I think the conversation that John was having, you know, had to sh- show courage to that. And and obviously, we appreciate it from a from a business perspective. But I think what that's doing, because we're middle aged and old now, right? It's uh, it's opening the doors uh, for uh, this younger generation that you and John are talking about. So, just wanted to thank you for that. No, and thank you for referring to me as middle aged. <laughs> well, that's what we are. That's what we are now. Okay. Uh, just to be clear, I was talking about me, but yeah, you guys are there too. <laughs> John, do you, do you want to, do you want to close us? Yeah. I just had one, one last question, Paulette. Sure. Uh, and, and it's probably uh, might make you feel slightly uncomfortable, but um, you've been such a leader uh, in so many ways uh, and people look up to you. What do you want your legacy on the industry to be? You know, you know, I read an article of, of when somebody asked what they wanted their legacy to be. You know, I just, you know, I, I, I don't think about so much what I want my legacy to be. Um, I just want to do whatever I can while I'm around to make sure that there is equity and that people have the same opportunities. Um, you know, the people, the ABA say 113 is, is, is just your legacy. And I, I said, yes, it didn't, it did happen. I did push it while I was president, you know, uh, of the ABA. And, and it is one of the things that gets the ABA the most attention um, right now. But, um, you know, I also know that there were other people who worked on that, um, you know, with, with, with me. And um, so it's a part of their legacy as well. Um, but, you know, I, I just, you know, to go back to your point is, you know, I, I would just like to think of have people think of me as someone who lived in a judgment free zone. You know, somebody who did not judge people, who took people as they came to them 
and who understood that inclusion does not mean exclusion. It means that there's room for everybody. And just one other thing on the legacy point. Someone asked me a question about legacy, and I felt like they were writing my obituary. And I, so I don't mean that your legacy is complete. You've got you've got a lot of things to do that will still add to it. But that was uh, that was uh, very very informative and appreciate it. Before we officially close the show, you can't see, but Paulette is shaking her head. We're going to try to get her to do it anyway. Uh, We do a segment called Pet Peeves that we share with our listeners. It's just an attempt to have some fun. And it could be what's uh, what's bothering you personally, what's bothering you in the world, or just a funny anecdote that, uh, that, that you want to share. So for our listeners, please hang in there because when we're done with the Pet Peeves section... We're going to come back and we're going to, John and I are going to discuss uh, what we heard and some of the, uh, some of the takeaways from Paulette. I don't know if you were shaking your head at this or I was going to uh, yell HU and see if, uh, see if you yelled something you back. Know. Okay, there we go. I was just waiting. I wanted to get that in. Thank you very much. Uh, so we will also give you the first pet peeve and then move over to John. So, so, you know, one of my pet peeves is, um, uh, is when people say things like irregardless <laughs> or whether or not <laughs> that <laughs> that that bothers me and and you never need to say whether or not it's just better. <laughs> um so so things like that <laughs> sort of bother me and um you know when people talk in legalese when it's not necessary Yes. Paulette can, uh, she can review the writing samples with us. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> yes, that's, uh, that's, that's right. John, do you my, my sh- son oh. said I should have been an English teacher rather than a lawyer. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. you know, I have been thinking about this pet peeve and you know that uh, Jewish guys like I am don't, they're, we're just not mechanically inclined as a lot generally. And so I can't react quickly to mechanical issues. And one of the things that drives me absolutely crazy is when you're watching one of these uh, streaming services, I won't name any particular one, any of them, after you finish an episode, they give you three and a half seconds to do something other than watch the next episode. And I cannot react that quickly. I just can't work the buttons. My brain won't work. And the next thing I know, I'm hooked on the next session, which is the intention. And and that, that is a pet peeve of mine, I have to say. Yeah, that's a that's a good one. I can never react quickly enough either. Um, so I'm gonna give uh, I'm gonna give a pet peeve as well, and I'll just remind our listeners um, through our info site on the website, uh, through LinkedIn uh, or on Twitter, you can also send in pet peeves that maybe we will read on the air. Um, and after we do this section, we're we're gonna talk about what we've learned from Paulette, what we heard today. Uh, we're gonna give her back some time uh, in her day, but then John and I will talk about what. We learned and what we heard uh, with all of you. My pet peeve, uh, again, I hate to go to the political, but I guess it's political or sports, uh, it seems like for me. My pet peeve is with the governor of Texas. Um, And the governor of Texas, in his infinite wisdom, has decided to repeal the mask mandate and open things 100%. I live in the same city now uh, as Dr. Anthony Fauci. And um, until we have herd immunity, it strikes me that we should still uh, be keeping ourselves safe. So Texas, uh, please put your mask back on, social distance and get your shots. 
uh, we don't want to have to go into another year's worth of hibernation. So that's that for me. I, I hope you enjoyed that segment of uh, the pet peeves as uh, as much as uh, we all did. Um, it, please know uh, you can send us your pet peeves. Maybe we'll read them uh, on the air. Um, you can tweet those or you can send them directly to the info at legalinnovators.com. That was quite a conversation, John. Um, Paulette is obviously a giant. I mean, we could start anywhere you want, but I, I love the the answer to your question on legacy. I don't know what uh, what resonated with you most. Well, what resonated with me was uh, her emphasis on the importance of having sponsors. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the world in which we find ourselves today, that means primarily, well, not primarily, but it me- includes male sponsors. And I think too many males have felt it wasn't part of their responsibility to sponsor people who weren't like them. And that has to end uh, for all the reasons that she said. And, and the fact that the senior partner in her firm has been uh, more than an ally, Champion. but essentially yeah. uh, set the tone and is, is making clear to the firm what has to happen, that is so critical. So to me, those things were really, were really important to hear her talk about and yeah. to give some examples of how when they do happen, what a difference it makes in people's careers. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, what, you know, I guess maybe a, a little bit related. I think I'm, you know, always bothered by, as, it, you know, I, I know you are too, and we, we share this, and that's inequity, right? I guess I couldn't help but be struck as uh, somebody that was raised by a single mom. You know, the idea of, uh, of a female partner is kind of doing, you know, the, in essence, the same as much work and being paid less. Um, now, her points are, are good in terms of uh, analytics and really trying to unearth all the data. And is it apples to apples in terms of, you know, what's the on a contribution analysis or is it, you know, sort of the same high margin work or, or what have you. But it seems that we've been talking about this pay uh, inequity for a while and uh, it was... Um, I think that's what stuck with me the most. And, and, you know, I think that there's a path forward that probably goes through data and analytics. I mean, but you were in some of those rooms where these issues were being discussed and comp was being awarded. I, I don't know. How did that, how that resonate with you? No, I, I think it's a real issue that has to be tackled. And interestingly, we had a series at my old law firm and we invited a woman who was very, not, from, not from the legal profession. Okay. She was a university president who spoke of, uh, and I believe she referred to a study, maybe it was anecdotal, but I think she referred to a study that showed that women rarely feel comfortable arguing about compensation mm-hmm. and men don't. They feel, they feel completely comfortable talking oh, go to, about compensation. And she was saying the lesson she, uh, some, someone mentored her, her to say, you need to fight for your compensation. You right. didn't make it clear when you're not happy what you because did. a male won't hesitate to do it. And right. that may be, a, I don't know what, you know, whether that's a generality, mm-hmm. but it's something that uh, made me think about the fact that um, there needs to be a change. Right. I know we're supposed to be discussing, but I guess I would ask, leaving on your, your, your old hat for a second of a very senior partner at a, a you know, big law firm. What about the way she, what she talked about, right? And that is uh, whether you're a woman or, you know, women uh, of color 
and doing all these extra things, you know, mentoring, the recruiting, you know, the bar associate events and that sort of thing. How, how do you think about that? And it, should that be, I mean, I, I know in some places it's starting to be a part of the comp formula, but how should firms think about that? Look, the, this whole question of how you uh, consider, and I'm going to use the term, it might be pejorative, it's not meant to be, but these soft uh, values mm-hmm. that uh, don't necessarily translate immediately into revenue, mm-hmm. uh, but are critical to the fabric of the firm, to the future of the firm, to the profile of the firm, all of these things firms are really struggling with. And the truth is that too many firms pay lip service to it. They say it goes into the equation, but then they don't measure it very well. And I think what became clear to me in talking to so many of my friends, and this starts at a very junior level where I thought that young black lawyers felt an obligation to give back in multiple ways, whether that was through pro bono work or through mentoring of other attorneys or whatever it was, that there were a lot of white lawyers who felt the same thing, but a lot who didn't have to feel that. And right, and right. I thought that was an unacknowledged unfairness that we do need to focus on as a profession. The other thing she said that followed up on that that I found really interesting and I hadn't thought of was when she said that black female senior lawyers don't leave once mm-hmm. they reach that level mm-hmm. uh, because they perceive themselves to have an obligation to sort of stick with it Mm -hmm. as an obligation to others and to their families and to the extent they may be the primary breadwinner. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't really looked at things that way. And that's why it's so important to get guests on who educate us as to to what's happening in a way we don't understand. Yeah. No. And and I think I share your, your sentiment. Um, and I would add maybe to the education inspiration, right? I think the uh, folks that I tend to really admire are those people that have lots of humility, but they have such outsized accomplishments. They leave it for others to talk about. And uh, it was appropriate to ask, hey, what's your legacy, right? She's been a giant, uh, you know, ahead of uh, all uh, the both bar associations or two to the biggest ones. And she's like, hey, it's it's not about me. But I think how she she summed it up really sticks with me when she says, I want to do whatever I can while I'm around to ensure equity. And on my question about being a bias interrupter, she said, hey, look, sometimes it's it's it even cost me. But when you have those folks that are in the rooms, if you're not speaking up, then it'll never get interrupted. And I think your comment, which I'd like to append to that, is if we weren't leaving that to women or to the to the groups that are offended or to black women and they were joined in by a chorus i think we could you know more than interrupt the bias we'd have a new plan to really make equity a thing uh, you know that that works for all so that 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 really stuck with me i also think that uh, or i share as you could tell from the discussion i share her optimism that yeah. um that the generation that is coming into the profession now and has been for the last several years, it really believes in this. And ultimately, employers do need to pay attention to what their employees uh, think is important or they won't be able to retain their people. So I think they have a lot more leverage uh, than maybe we thought we did when we were young attorneys. Maybe we had it and didn't perceive it. 
I think they have it and do perceive it. That gives me reason to hope. Yeah. And and like you said, they're bold. Uh, I think the jokes are plentiful around uh, millennials, but it's interesting to me that two guests in a row have talked, even though they came through periods um, of deep, you know, segregation or deep uh, oppression of gender rights. And now they're more hopeful because of this next generation. I think that's just absolutely uh, spectacular. But she also talked about this concept of being able to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? So as you said, I can only speak for myself. I got to justify as a, as a black attorney, I said, God, I got to justify being here. I'm going to put my head down. And this crew that's coming through right now says, hey, you know what? I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to do good work just because that's what I do. But when a George Floyd or something like that happens, I'm not going to be afraid to call it out. And I think she uh, encapsulated it well that you can do both. And, you know, true change may be driven by both. Well said. Well, we both want to take this opportunity to thank our fabulous guest, Paulette Brown, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Paulette. And we thank all of you for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We really look forward to talking to our next guest, which will be coming up in a couple of weeks. We ask all of you to be safe following on Brian's uh, admonition and stay well. 